So I thought to myself, and the boys are going to come home and I'm just, my wife's an absolute wreck and we're sitting on the couch and I'm like, I go, honey, I got I to gotta say something. I got this one chance, this gift, this death gate. Death gave me this opportunity to be the best dad I can possibly be. So when they get home, I have to say something that is impactful. I said, boys, I got really bad news. Your brother's dead. And Ian looked up at me and just said, you know, this was after a few seconds and said, how'd he die, dad? Drugs? You see, they knew. They knew that that's how their brother died. And so I had this thing inside me going, okay, it's, this is your speech, Jeff. You know, this is your husband moment, your, you know, your dad moment. You only get a few of them in your lifetime, Jazz. I would argue that as a human being, you get three or four times in your entire lifetime where you have to say something that will set the foundation for the quality of the rest of the life of your family or whatever relationship you're in. Welcome to Authors of Impact. I'm your host, Jazz Rawlinson, best-selling author, book coach, and all-round lover of impactful stories. Join with me as we go behind the memoir with some of the world's most influential authors, revealing the secrets and strategies that have helped each writer go from big idea to author of impact. I'll also share with you the techniques and tips that I use as a book coach and author that can help you better navigate the writing and publishing process for yourself. If you're ready to become an author of impact, this is the place for you. Hey, Changemakers, and welcome back to Authors of Impact. Today on the show, I'm joined by Jeff Johnston, best-selling author and mental health advocate. Jeff's story centers around his journey through the Jeff's story centers around his journey through the loss of his oldest son, Seth, who died of fentanyl poisoning in 2016. Since that day, Jeff has dedicated his life to making a difference in the mental health and substance abuse spaces. And today on the show, we're going to be speaking about Jeff's book, This One's For You, an inspirational journey through addiction, death, and meaning. As you could probably tell by now, we will be talking about addiction and recovery. So please go gently with this episode if it's a topic that's particularly personal for you. That said, this is a really powerful conversation and one that I hope will shed some light for you in your own personal well-being journey. In this conversation, as well as talking about Jeff's book, we will also be talking about the legacy that he's created from the loss of his son, Seth, how he approached this conversation with his remaining children and the importance of honesty and vulnerability and also Jeff's mission to change the landscape of mental health and financial awareness for Gen Zs. As I said, this is a really powerful conversation and one that honestly made me tear up at the end just because of how inspirational Jeff truly is. And that's not a word that I use lightly. It's really quite overused these days. But um, if you listen to this conversation, I'm sure you will agree that Jeff Jeff's story is such a unique one, um, but at the same time, a story that is so common amongst so many of us. So I hope this brings hope to you and that it also sheds um, light, as I said, and shares some nuggets of wisdom that can help you on your own journey. So without further ado, here is my chat with Jeff Johnston. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, Jazz, this is an honor, and I'm really excited to have this conversation today with you. Me too. Uh, it was such a pleasure to be on your podcast and now to have you on mine as well. So I think it'll be great for listeners to be able to kind of join both both parts of the conversation um, and learn more about yourself as well. Um, we were just talking off here and, you know, obviously for anybody who's listening along, you will have heard in the introduction about some of the things that we're going to be 
touching on today and talking about issues like mental health and um, suicide prevention. I would love if you could just start off, Jeff, by sharing with us about Seth's story, because this is really what inspired your whole journey and also the writing of the book that we're here to talk about today. So do you just take us through a bit about Seth's story and where that led, you know, you to this place that you're in now? Well, again, thanks for giving me this opportunity and this platform to talk about this important topic. Um, you know, Seth was like any other kid. I like to start my conversations out and in the book, I, I he spent a lot of time talking about him prior to his addictions. And then um, after what happened on October 4, 2016. And, you know, Seth, was, again, like like so many young adults or young, you know, my, I wouldn't say a kid. He was 16 when he was given Adderall. And that, that was really, people ask me all the time, where did this start? You know, what's the genesis point? You know, if you had to unwind and reverse engineer what happened, where do you think it started? Because parents that have young kids, they want to know. <laughs> They're like, we don't want to go through what you went through. Can you tell us when this started? I have to say, when I play it all back, you know, when Seth was younger, he had issues with con- with constructive criticism. So when teachers would say, hey, you know, um, you, you didn't pay attention during this test or something, he would get very defensive, uh, which I don't think is abnormal. I mean, I shudder to think what I was like at 13, 14, and 15. Well, I know from my parents, I was very attention deficit. Um, in my generation, they gave you Ritalin, which I never took. Um, and, you know, if there's something I, I'm going to regret the rest of my life, Jazz, is that's the fact that, you know, when he was 16, my wife and I took him in to get diagnosed for what now I just see as being a normal teenage boy. But I was convinced or sold this idea that he was, a, that there was a disorder. And doctor gave him Adderall. And, you know, I just, I was busy making money and coaching and traveling and all the, all the distractions trying, you know, I could have been a better dad at that point. I should have just got a second opinion or just Googled what Adderall was. It's basically watered down methamphetamine. That's all it is. It's a speed. It's an upper. Um, and I just gave it to him and I gave the bottle to him, Jazz, which is just horrendous to think now in hindsight, as much as I know about addiction and substance abuse. And, and he, you know, probably one night took two. What happens if I take two? Then he would take some to school, sell a pill for 20 bucks. And that's how it started. And Adderall wasn't the right thing for Seth. So anyone watching this right now or listening, if your son or daughter's on Adderall, don't go off. I'm not a doctor. I'm sharing my story from my lens only. So it's very important that people understand, you know, if, if what I'm saying worries you, then go get a second opinion. There's, there's no nothing wrong with that. So, and it just you know went from drinking and and out and um, you know alcohol, marijuana, drunk driving, and breaking and entering, and you know cocaine, all all from 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Um, and then he was in prison, you know, 22 years old, got released early. The lawyer called me, and was very ecstatic that Seth got released early, and I turned to my wife and I said, "This is really bad news." And we talk about that day in the book. And, you know, within 60 days of getting out of jail, he had met somebody that was into heroin. We, we were pretty sure Seth never did heroin prior to this event. And he looked great when he got out of prison. I just gave him a big hug and said, you know, dude, you look so good. He had been 
working out and his complexion looked good because he'd been off drugs and alcohol the whole time he was in jail in prison. And within 60 days, he was dead and um, 23 years old, you know, and then three weeks later, his daughter's born, oh, you know, gosh. and, and her name's Brighton, which is uh, the name of our, my startup company, an app I've developed for Gen Z. I don't ever want kids to have no place to go when they need mental health. And in the States, it's, it's, it's an epidemic here. It's just epic proportions, how bad it is here. And I'm sure it's that way around the world. Um, and so I started writing the book, Seth Dyden 16, the book came out in 2000. So probably around 18 or 19, I had an idea. And really jazz, my motivation behind the book was I had so many stories in my head. I kept repeating when I talked to schools or I would talk to kids and then this story pop in and like, oh, remember that story? And, and my wife, you know, at, and my wife and I at the time were just, our alcoholism had gotten really, really bad and to the point where I didn't work for a year and a half. I was fortunate to own my own investment company. So I had the ability to stay home and not work. And, you know, my wife and I, instead of trying to get help and doing the things that are constructive, we just drank and drank and drank. And finally on December 24th of 17, I decided to stop drinking. So I, I talk about that in the book because I think it's really important to understand why I, I stopped drinking. The primary reason I quit, and this shocks people, wasn't for me, it was for my wife. I, I saw her go from this beautiful, vibrant, you know, just walk into a room and people would stop, one of those people, just, you know, beautiful. And I saw her just turn into this angry, spiteful old lady. And she's, she's, she was nine years younger than me, but she looked, you know, 70 with her drinking and smoking. And so I thought, you know, if I could quit drinking at 52, maybe, maybe I can be the husband that she needs right now. I, we, she went to therapy. She was in a rehab facility for about, I don't know what it was, 60 days maybe. And, and I thought, you know, I'll just stop drinking and I quit. But it didn't help her and, and it got worse. And, and, and then on a day after our youngest son's 19th birthday, June 29th of 2021, my wife died from alcoholism at the age of 46. We're married 21 years. So, and I was, um, I was started the book, like I said, at about 18. So uh, it came out well, in just, 2000. I just want to so pause wife... you for a minute. Sorry, yeah, Jeff. Yep. I hate to interrupt, but I, I just, so many sort of thoughts coming up. And I know. <laughs> It's just, I know that, because I know that when you, you've sort of, when you're far enough um, through uh, some of the things that you've been through, it's, it gets much easier to talk about, but there's be so many people listening who would be like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe that not only did you lose your son in this heartbreaking way, but then to lose your wife as well, you know, that's two huge traumas um in the space of about five years uh -huh. how i just wanted to pause and come back to that and just ask you um you know you talk about how you got to this realization of wanting to quit alcohol because you you wanted to do that for your wife but once your wife you know she succumbed to her addictions and she wasn't able to find i guess that resilience that you were starting to to build I wanted to ask you, how did you find the strength to keep going after your wife died? Because she was the original reason, as you said, that you wanted to quit drinking. And now you don't have your son. You don't have your wife. You've, you're suddenly a single father to two young boys who are also, uh, you know, grieving. 
how did how did you find the strength to keep living after that? It was tough. Um, my wife, like I said, died on June 29th of 2021. And that Christmas, I had the worst, you know, day of my life uh, during that Christmas vacation. It almost was the end of my life. Um, and I talk about it publicly. I don't, I don't bring it up every time I have a conversation. But I think it's important to know that people look at me as bulletproof. They look at living undeterred. They look at this guy that did a book and podcast and went around the United States last summer for 95 days. This guy had a gun to his head? Yeah, I did. And I, I was at peace dying. I, I was. And I didn't, obviously. And a lot of it's because of my granddaughter, my two boys, and my 90-year-old dad. And, and um, how I got through it was, I tell you what, the book probably was the first, you know, thing that got me to focus on advocacy. Because as I was writing the book and going through the chapters, I'd never written a book before, ever. Matter of fact, I was so naive, I started writing it on an email because I didn't know what Google Docs were. I didn't know what, I didn't know what Google Docs were. I didn't, I didn't research it. I just had these million things. I just got an email out to Jeff Johnston. Here's my book. Blah, 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 started typing. And, you know, and then finally I talked to one of my assistants at work and she's like, uh, Jeff, you ought to use Google Docs. It'd be easier. So I got introduced to Google Docs in the year 2000. <laughs> um, and I just sat up at night and started writing, and writing, and crying and writing. And just, it was because my wife was still alive at the time. So it was hard to deal with what she was going through and trying to help her and then tell the story and think about my granddaughter, Brighton. And she's going to read this book someday. So I got to make sure I, I want to be honest. I don't want to coddle her. She's only six. So she needs to enjoy her youth right now, her childhood. I don't need to, you know, toxic it for her mm. by... Bringing but there up, will be a time where she there will be will yeah. be, be and I want her to trust Grandpa. Mm. I want her to trust me, and I've got people in family circle stuff that tell me you know don't don't tell them till they're teenager, and I'm like, um, yeah, that's how cycles repeat, keeping secrets from people, and what what motivation would there be because they can't handle the truth? I don't think they can handle lying. The truth isn't the problem. It's the lying. And once you do that, then you, the, the cover-up becomes worse. And then when they're 18, 19, or 20, and they say, oh, my dad died from an overdose of fentanyl? Mm. He told me he died of a heart attack. And this happens all the time. And I don't, I don't get it. Tell the truth at an age that you, you think as the parent, and everybody's different, and let them figure out their pain and suffering and their grief. Let let them figure that out. I think there's something beautiful in that. I really do. And I want to be there for Brighton. I want to tell her how great her dad was. Yeah, it's it's so it's such a tricky one when it comes to speaking honestly with our kids and also like how much do you shield them from and Right. I you know, it's I really don't, you know, like I I can't imagine how I would deal with that situation if I was trying to explain that because I often think about this when it comes to children who've lost their uh, a parent, you know, most often their mother through domestic homicide. And I often think, what are they told? You know, some of these kids that I see in the news, they're, and even families I know, the child was like three or four when the mother was killed. And so a child that young can't comprehend that, you know, daddy has 
killed mummy. Yeah. Really. And that's, it's too much. So I often wonder what grandparents or, you know, other family members tell them and when they choose to tell them the truth. And it's so hard. So I really empathize with you on that. And I, I think it is, this is one of the beautiful things about book writing is that we are leaving a legacy for our families and for other generations. And it, it's wonderful that Brighton will have this one day to be able to know more about her dad and that, you know, he was trying so hard to get on top of these, you know, whether some people would say, um, you know, whether it was demon, his demons or whether it was his addictions, however you want to say it. But he was trying so hard to change his life. Uh-huh. And it was just that moment of temptation and whatever happened, you know, it's it's a terrible tragedy that he's been lost. But it's wonderful that you are leading the way for the rest of your family and your boys as well. And I wanted to ask you, what, what has the journey been like for your two sons? Because they were so young when they lost their brother and then also when they lost their mother. How have they, have they sort of followed? Obviously, I know the answers to this, but yeah, for our yeah, listeners, yeah. Yep. have they followed in your footsteps of trying to, you know, embrace this message of living undeterred and choosing to live a better life rather than living with with bitterness? What's it been like for them? Well, I'm happy you asked that question because I do get asked that quite a bit, but surprisingly, a lot of people don't go down that road because they think it's too sensitive. And I tell people I can't get triggered. Really? You're going to say something to hurt my feelings? I mean, come on. Um, But, you know, and this is an important part about the book, and I like your segue here because this this will be a chapter in my book. It became a very important part of my life was the day Seth died. And I chronicle the whole thing in the book, uh, the morning and how I present it to the boys. But there's a chapter in my book called The Two Roads. And to me, that became the better, not bitter mindset and ultimately living undeterred is what I talk to people about. And how I presented it, Jazz, to the kids was this. And first of all, in the book, I did a lot of research on sibling bereavement. So when a child loses a brother or sister, and it's like the number one hardest thing for a child to get to, to, to deal with the rest of their life is the loss of a sibling, not a mom or dad, not an aunt and uncle, not a grandparents, not a dog or cat. Losing a brother and sister is the hardest thing for a child to, uh, and again, from a death perspective. Now I I know there's like things like kids getting sexually molested, things like that. Uh We're not talking about that. Um, That's that's interesting. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have known that distinction. I would have thought it was a a parent. No, it was a sibling. Um, and again, uh, it's in the book. So people who get the book, you can see the source. I, 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 I acknowledge the person who I got this from. I try to be pretty good at uh, information like that when I put it in the book. But the book then forced me to learn about these things. And so as I was writing the book, I thought about, okay, I think it's important for people who read this book. I also have an audio book, the same book, obviously, and I read it. So people want to hear me read my own book. Uh, you can go to the Audible. But Jazz, it was so important for me that I find an opportunity in this to present to the boys through reframing, which I, I, I learned in college when I studied stoicism about the beauty of taking a situation, changing the lens. And so I thought to myself, and the boys are going to come home and I'm just, my wife's an absolute wreck and we're sitting on the couch and I'm like, I go, honey, I got I to gotta say something. I got this one chance, this gift, this death gate. Death gave me this opportunity to be the best dad I can possibly be. So when they get home, I have to say something that 
is impactful. And I thought and thought, and uh, ultimately they came in and they sat down and I said, boys, I got really bad news. Your brother's dead. And Ian looked up at me and just said, you know, this was after a few seconds and said, how'd he die, dad, drugs? You see, they knew, they knew that that's how their brother died. And so I had this thing inside me going, okay, it's, this is your speech, Jeff. You know, this is your husband moment, your, you know, your dad moment. You only get a few of them in your lifetime, Jazz. You don't get hundreds and hundreds of these opportunities. I would argue that as a human being, you get three or four times in your entire lifetime where you have to say something that will set the foundation for the quality of the rest of the life of your family or whatever relationship you're in. Okay. So I knew that. I didn't know what the hell heck I was going to say. And I stood up, looked over at my wife, imagine what she was like. Um, I looked at the boys, took, cleared my voice, and, and this became a chapter in my book called The Two Roads. And I said, boys, we have one of two roads to go down. We have one road of anger, despair, and hatred. We'll become alcoholics and addicts ourselves. Or we have a road of inspiration and motivation. And this can be the single greatest moment in our lives to make a difference in the lives of others. I'm on the second road and I ask you to join me. And I kind of thought to myself, I didn't rehearse it. And I thought, where did that come from, Jeff? That's so beautiful. It's so, it's so profound in that Yeah, moment. exactly. And I, I didn't rehearse it. I'm not like trying to take credit for being, you know, this psychologist or something, but it was honest. It was true. It was from the heart. It was genuine. And it was really what I meant. And so I put my foot down, you know, I'm going to show the boys what to do. Well, now you know what happened. I, my wife and I stayed home for 14 months and got drunk every day. And the boys were out doing heroic things, raising money and being on the advisory boards. And you know, they were 13 and 15. And they did a better job than dad did. And, um, until I stopped drinking. And that was the one thing that saved my life. I, everything changed. As my wife's drinking got worse and her life got shortened, my life got better and my life got longer. And I'm 57 now. I've lost 40 pounds since I quit drinking. I work out maybe two hours a day. I never used to work out. Uh, I don't eat unhealthy foods at all. So I want to live to be 150. I ain't going to do it the way I was living. And obviously That's two so people true. in my life have died. And so death has reminded me again, get your stuff together, Jeff. You're better than this. You know, you don't, you don't have to be full of suffering and, and sorrow and anger and hatred. So I have no anger in my heart. Um, I'm at the best place I've ever been in my life. But I tell you what, Jazz, I work really, really hard at staying there. Really hard. Yes, and I'm so glad you said that and it kind of fits perfectly with the next the next sort of thing I wanted to dive into with you because you know, this is such a important conversation and it's everybody deals di differently with grief and you know, you have articulated that so powerfully with obviously the the choices that your wife made compared mm -hmm. to the choices that you made and the fact that you were able to pull yourself out of that and your wife just felt that she couldn't and as I said, everybody grieves differently and makes different choices. And I think it's so powerful and inspiring, you know, that the journey that you have, that this has taken you on and the decisions that you have made. But I also think it's really important to clarify what you just did, which is that you work really hard yeah. to stay <laughs> in a place of being mentally healthy. Because, you know, there might be some people who listen to this and go, wow, this 
this guy Jeff is superhuman, you know, like yeah. he must be superhuman to be able to do Far this. From or, it. or there may be some who go, oh, you know, you make it sound so easy, like you just chose to live a better life rather than living with bitterness, but which is not true. And there was something on your uh, website, I think it was, that I was reading where you said, um, you were talking about the journey and you said, um, I soon realized I had two options, which is what you were just talking about. I could go down a road of anger and despair and become bitter, or I could use this motivation to become better. I chose the road of better. On June 29th, 2021, I lost my wife Prudence to alcoholism. The only This only few, you know, further fueled my fire to make a difference and change the way we approach mental health and substance use disorders. While it isn't always an easy journey, I wake up every day and choose, despite the challenges, to live undeterred. And I love that you make that distinction. Um, you know, that this doesn't mean that life is easy for you. And just because you live with, you know, purpose and passion now doesn't mean that you don't still have bad days. So, you know, thank you for being real about that and that you have to work really hard. Um, what are some of the things that you, I know you've mentioned some already, but what are some of the things that you do in your daily life and also in your weekly life that help you to stay in this more mentally well place? I'll just give you an example of today. This is an average day for me. Uh, got up at 6.30. Um, I leave my phone on the charger. I get up, let my dogs out. You know, I sit outside on my porch watch my dogs and I got bird feeders. I'm, you know, I'm old. I got bird feeders now. I've got my little book and I look at birds and I try to listen to them talk and I'm, I'm going, what kind of bird is that? So I spend about half an hour every morning just, just doing that, having my, I have one cup of coffee, strong coffee. Then I go to decaf. Um, you know, then maybe it's maybe an hour into that. Um, I'll, uh, grab a really light breakfast, you know, um, a couple egg whites, some fruit and stuff. And then I'll get on my computer finally, sit on my deck, and I'll jump on, you know, LinkedIn and Facebook and a couple things just to maybe follow up and see who's making posts. And I, I tend to be more um, uh, of a person who, who will share and comment and, and fire people up than to sit there and post things about me, 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 me all the time. So I like to find people to make a post. I'll share it and say, hey, this, this person's got a lot of stuff to add. You should follow them and stuff like that. So I like doing that. And, and then um, typically, you know, that time I'll, I'll, they do errands and stuff, but I like to work out about two hours a day. So before I came on here, I wrapped up a two hour run on my elliptical because I can't run outside because my knees are kind of shot. Lightweight, sit in the sauna a little bit, you know, so I do a lot of things that are for bod mind and body. And then I get into my advocacy, which is my purpose. So I have the mind, body and purpose. And so my advocacy, talking to you, I, I know there's people that follow you that are going to find some nugget of wisdom, hopefully from what you and I talk about. And, and they can put that into their life. And, and, um, and then I go to bed pretty early, you know, and, um, I don't watch any TV. I don't, I don't follow any toxic people. I don't argue. I don't make, you know, opinions that I have to defend. Um, I stay pretty off the radar in those respects and it makes my mental health better. Um, I don't know how people sit there all day on social media and argue with people. I have no idea. I, w I was going to say it is a, such a healthy decision to do that for yourself. Oh, I forgot. Sorry to interrupt you. I forgot something I do every day. I don't miss. And that's 20 oh, yes, minutes of meditation. Please. So that's the first thing I do before I get on my computer, after I watch the birds and let my dogs out, I'll then sit on my deck and meditate for 20 minutes. Guided meditation, mask on, 
And that is, that's, I'm starting the right day. I'm brightening up my mind to start my day. Yes. And that's what we're trying to teach kids to do. Start your day, first 30 minutes, to brighten your mind. Then go on through the rest of your day. I want to pick back up on what you were saying about um, social media, but what you just said then, yes, so important. We we need to be teaching our youth to find ways to, you know, declutter all of this toxicity that's in their digital world all the time, that's overflowing into their, their physical world, you know, 3D mm-hmm. world. But what you were saying about, you know, you said, I don't spend my days on social media arguing with people. It's really interesting because I definitely notice that I feel quite overwhelmed by the negativity that I see online. And because I'm a person with, you know, very strong opinions on things, I often feel I may not necessarily get involved in, you know, arguments because I don't like being part of that. But I feel constantly this need to defend certain things or to stand up for certain things. And, and then that brings anxiety because I'm like, oh, is someone going to attack me online for saying how I feel about this? And I have this constant feeling like I need to talk about all the things when when I bring myself back. Sometimes I go, Jazz, you don't have to talk about all the things. You can have your opinion and choose not to say something. Do you ever feel that way yourself? Like, do you ever feel, even though you don't get involved in things, do all you the time. feel a All pull? the time. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm opinionated like everybody else, especially on topics like harm reduction and For sure. you know uh, supply side on the drug issue that we have in this country with fentanyl coming across the border and Gen Z mental health. You know what's the impact of you know um, social media and vaping and things like that. And I I I I sit uh, like a fly on the wall and just listen to the conversations. I very, very rarely inject myself and I have to hold back sometimes, but I always, I had a little thing when I was, uh, oh, I'd say maybe 10, I was going to say younger, but obviously 10 years ago I was younger where I was very impulsive. If somebody sent me an email, it made me mad. I would respond. If I got cut off, I'd flip the person off, you know? And then after, you know, figuring out that I needed to chill a little bit, I implemented what I call 24-hour rule, and it's literally yes. saved my life. Yeah. So if you send me an email, hey, Jeff, you know, your, your podcast interview was I terrible. I podcast. I cannot... It sucks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can't believe I had you on. Your book sucks and blah, blah, blah. And it's just to me. No one else saw it. Yeah. I, w- I wouldn't respond. A lot of times I'll type the response and save it as a me draft too. overnight. Yeah. And then I'll get up and i tell you what, 100% of the time, not only didn't I send it, I was happy I didn't send it because something always kind of the universe will come in and recalibrate and balance things. And then by noon the next day, I'm like, that wasn't even a problem. You know, it's like, man, if I had sent that email though, holy cow. So I've, I've got a built in 24 hour rule now, you know, so it's not just emails. It's, it's anything in my life now. I don't, I don't respond. Um, I just don't, unless it's something positive. I'm so glad to hear that you do that too, because I do the draft response thing mm-hmm. and yeah, I have done the 24, I usually do the 24 hour thing too. And I did that recently with something I was like really ready to go off <laughs> about this particular thing. And I was like, oh, I'm so mad. like, this person is so selfish. And um, I didn't, I didn't, I just was like, 
okay, I'm not going to say anything for a bit. And then the next day I was like, all right, maybe now I'm going to say it. And then I was like, ah, oh, uh, maybe I just won't. I'll just sit on it for a while. And then a week passed and I went, oh, I didn't even feel upset about this anymore. You know, it's not a big deal to me now. And I'm so glad I didn't go off and make this a big thing because right now, like it's, it's just not. So I, I'm glad to hear you say that. They have a word for this jazz that I, it's actually in my book. Um, and when I did the 24 hour rule, I didn't know there was an actual term basically for it. And it's not specifically a term for that description, but the word describes this concept. And that word is impermanence. And the word became in my book, I talk about impermanence. And then through meditation, I've learned that, you know, I don't have to own my thoughts. They die as quickly as they came. And so does anger. So does jealousy. So does, you know, imposter syndrome, anything that you have inside of you, it didn't exist before that feeling got inside of you. And it certainly won't have to exist afterwards. And so things like suffering, you know, before Seth died, obviously I wasn't suffering in that regard. And then he died. Well, I don't have to hang on to that. It's just like a thought. He's not coming back. So, you know, if I linger and let it really be destructive, then I'm not allowing impermanence to do its job, to mother mother nature do its job. And that's to let things slowly go back to base to baseline. So the idea of impermanence to me is beautiful because the best of times don't last either. So it isn't just the worst of times. But if you're on vacation with your husband and you're in Italy and you're having a great time, it's like you gotta just close your eyes and say, man. This is going to end. This is so beautiful. And so I, I think impermanence can be used on both sides of the fence. This isn't just that all bad things end, but so do the good things. And that's why you got to be in the moment. That's what my tattoo is all about. It's, it's a raindrop hitting the water and it, it reflects. It's the, it's the symbol for living in the moment. I put that on two years after Seth died. And it gets me when I get all like, you know, jacked up and I'm seeing pictures like behind me or something. And, and I just sit and go, okay, this will pass, Jeff. Just chill, close your eyes, you know, just almost self-medicate like real quickly, just kind of uh -huh. not self-medicate, but self-meditate. You know, these are tools that I use every day. And, you know, I'm, I'm a sponge. It's like, there's gotta be thousands of more tools that I'm not using yet. That's what keeps me excited about mental health advocacy is there's so much out there we don't know. I think I've heard you speak about this, about how important it is to you to keep learning and just, yeah, yeah always learning something new because that's really important for our mental health as well. It's huge. Absolutely huge. And, you know, I, I'm a natural skeptic, so it's easy for me to, um, to be hesitant into jumping into things, but there are some areas of mental health research right now that are very interesting to me. Uh, brainwave technology, um, TMS has already been used for, for lots of things, but um, uh, there's some organizations in the States here uh, that have invested pretty heavily in brainwave technology. Obviously, psychedelic research is something that's uh, been, been out there, got kind of pushed away with the war on drugs and obviously losing a son to fentanyl. You know, there'd be hesitation for me, but you know what? A lot of evidence with PTSD and depression and alcoholism. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. So, I mean, it, I, I'm open to any, I'm just tired of people dying. It's like, you know, we've got, we can fly people to the moon. We can, we can do all these things, 
but we can't improve mental health. We can't get people to make better choices. And I mean better. I mean choices that keep them alive. We all make mistakes. You know, I had pizza last night. That's not a great choice. <laughs> yeah. You know, but if I did it seven days in a row for five years, it would be a horrendous choice. You know? Well, I think part of what you just said about, you know, getting people, improving people's mental health, getting people to live better lives, getting people to stop dying. Well, one of the, the key parts of that is for people to hear messages of hope, you know, which is what you're putting out there every day. And I wanted to circle back to the book because obviously, you know, we're here to talk about, you know, your work as an author as well. So I wanted to ask you about, you know, the writing of this one is this one's for you. Um, you know, you talked earlier about the challenges of being a first time author and writing a book and sort of not knowing where to start. What were just maybe a couple of other challenges that you faced once you, you know, you made this decision, okay, I'm going to write this book, but what were some of the main challenges that you came up against and how did you work through those? Well, I very quickly made a decision very quickly that I didn't write the book to make money. I, to this day, have no idea how many books I've sold. Probably most have been me buying them, handing them out free at events. Uh, I have no idea. Zero. Um, That was not why I wrote the book. I know a lot of authors, that is their motivation. Um, Me was to provide a legacy for Seth and my granddaughter. That was it. I mean, that's as authentic as I can possibly be to tell you why it was important for me to write this book. I don't care if I ever make a penny on it. Uh, all the proceeds go to my nonprofit anyway. So this, again, my lens I was doing this from was from from the heart. Not the people that can't write a book and make money and have it from the heart. Not from, I, mean, I understand that part, but it's like, it's like my motivation was so raw and so... Um, I was just driven to get the true story out about my son, about other moms and dads that got eight, nine, ten year olds that look out the window at school and think about other things than calculus or math or spelling. And they're normal. These kids aren't disordered. They're not abnormal. And Seth was normal, but I was convinced by somebody else that he wasn't. And I, I again, I, you know, I really think it's important for parents to really understand what their kids, not just what they're prescribed by doctors, Jazz, but what the heck they're eating every day. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Sodas with the sugars in it. And it's like, I tell my boys every time they eat something, what's, I go, what's the added sugars? What's the added? So all my friends, my friends' friends that are all younger kids, they all know what added sugars are now. You know, it's not the sugars in your drinks, it's the added sugars. Well, so, we're so aware of that here in Australia, well, you know, a lot of us are, there are a lot who aren't, but that's one thing that blows my mind, even when I'm just just consuming, you know, pop culture movies, you know, as uh-huh. I was growing up about America and I'd see these cafeteria scenes and uh-huh. I was like, what the hell are they eating? Like, what's this gigantic soda? Or even people I follow now on YouTube, they sit down to do their YouTube video and they're sipping on a, a soda or a drink but it's in this gigantic red cup and i'm just like yeah what you doing girl like that's not good for you and it seems to be so kind of like a almost like a meme for us here in australia of americans <laughs> and you know yeah yeah I mean, i'm not i'm not proud of, of our eating here in the states but you know going back a little bit to some of the inspiration with the book so you know i thought it was really nice or i thought it was important for me to honor seth tell the truth provide a legacy for Brighton and a template for other parents to it, you know, 
if you had something like what happened to me happen to you, people would say, well, don't let it define you. Don't let it define you, right? I say, to heck with that. Let it define you, but let it define you positively. This idea of don't let it define you, don't, they don't finish the sentence. I tell kids, it's okay to let anything happen to you, make it for you, and let it define you in a positive way. That's free. That's not a prescription from the doctor. That's free. And that's what parents need to be telling their kids. It's okay to let this define you, but let's make sure we find a way to let it define you in an uplifting, inspirational way. Because you know what? Maybe you'll help other kids. We don't usually hear the end of that sentence, just like you said. No, we don't. You know, we hear, and, and I'm sure I've said that before too, probably. Like, yeah, I've definitely said it, you know, like it's important that we don't let trauma define our lives like we need to redefine what our lives are about but I I love the extra sort of piece that you bring to it that you know what you Mm -hmm. can actually be defined by these things but I am I'm living proof you can yeah I'm defined by their death every second yeah Hmm. yeah and that's honoring those two pieces it's honoring the the reality that trauma Uh does impact us you know you're not Uh just putting a, a, you know, swiping a cloth across it and going, oh, I'm all good. I live a life of passion and purpose now. And I don't let those things, you know, define me or get me down. Like you're, I love that you're honest about that. Yeah, I am defined by this. They're not dead to me. They're not dead to me until I stop talking about them. That's when they die. So on my watch, that ain't ever going to happen. And for any parent out there that's struggling and, 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 um, whatever, events happen in their life, possibly try to reframe it as an opportunity to make yourself better. And in doing so, you help other people around you. That's that's the unfortunate thing about somebody who has a, a serious addiction or someone who's got depression is it brings people around you that you care about down to that level. And if we want to uplift and inspire and provide hope and inspiration, it starts with us first. It has to. And, you know, that's probably the best thing I would recommend for people is whatever you can do to find in your day, whatever it is, writing a book, writing a next book, doing a podcast, whatever. If it's getting you in that three steps forward, one step back math, that's what we want. We want more forward than we do back, but back's okay. We just want more forward. So you're net positive at the end of every day. So I, I cry all the time. I mean- all the time, a tough, really hard, gut-wrenching cries. But I make it to tomorrow. And all that feeling I had is impermanent. It's gone. That, that idea we talked about. So it's like, I, I have this wisdom at 57 now that really came from death. And I owe death a lot. It took a lot from me, but it gave me a lot too. And it will continue. We, you and I both at some point will die. So we need to educate our kids on what death is and not fear it and, you know, make got to be sensitive here. We don't have a lot of time, so I don't want to go down a road that would take a lot to unwind this, but sometimes the myths we create or the stories we tell our kids, we need to be very careful of the implications long-term. You know, on one hand, we tell them, you know, after they've been believing us for years that Santa Claus is real, and then we tell them it's not, and the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy. And then we, you know, some people will use, you know, um, religion in the same context. And I think kids sometimes will say, well, geez, you didn't tell me the truth in these other four things. Why would I believe this? And so 
I, I'm not telling you not to say Santa, I mean, Santa Claus. Trust me, it, I'm not trying to kill Santa Claus, but it's like, it's like there's got to be some honesty. We start with our kids and telling them the good and the bad and the truth, and then letting them figure out how much of this they want to they want to figure out on their own how to self-assess and autonomously build back mm-hmm. their their well-being. You know, it's it's hard. I learn every day, man. I, I don't know, I don't know as much as maybe people think I do. To be honest with you. I'm just a, We're I'm a, all I'm learning a, all the time. I'm a ridiculously you know? curious human. And that's probably the best quit, uh, trait I have. And I think that is, you're exactly right. You know, that is probably one of the best things that's helping you to live this life of, of living a, a mentally well life. Um, and look, this I could just talk to you all day about I know, this. There's I so could much too. more <laughs> we could dive into, but... We're, we're coming to the end of our um, time together, sadly. So there's two questions that I'd really love to ask you before we do wrap up. One is, what is the best thing that has come about as a result of writing This One Is For You? The number of absolutely amazing human beings that have come into my life. And you know, most people will tell you, as you get older, there's this, there's this lessening of relationships right like your your funnel gets small if you have less and less so when you're in college you have 100 friends you know when you're 40s it it goes down and by the time you're 50s and 60s it gets way down to like i have just a handful but the reality is since i wrote the book it's been inverted and now i've got i've got so I many i didn't i didn't know you before i wrote the book now i know you i consider you a friend it's like i've got hundreds i met five or six brand new people today all because I wrote a book that I had no idea how to write and I had no objective objective to make money on it. I just wrote it as a memoir, as a diary, as a memoir. And that would be probably, I don't remember your question now, but I think I answered it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just talking about like the best thing that's come about as part of writing it. Oh, is the relationships I met, the new people. Yeah. And I, I totally, totally resonate with that. And it's so true. And so, I think for those listening, you know, this is a beautiful lesson that we all have our own reasons for writing a book. And for some of us, you know, for for some people, like you said, it is to really create thought leadership or to make another stream of revenue, make a lot of money. And for others of us, it is about connection and it's about hopefully saving lives. It's about making other people's lives better. And so yeah, there's so much to your story and you know for those who've listened to the intro they'll they'll know a bit more about that i would love for people to learn more about the book and also all the other things you've done like the tour that you did across america which you know we don't have time to get into today but for yeah. those listening definitely go and follow jeff so that you can learn more about his amazing work work he's doing to you know help save and change lives and educate more around addiction and mental um, ill health and especially helping our our Gen Zs as well. Um, two more questions. Firstly, where can people learn more about you and your work? Um, and also, where can they learn more about the tour that you did? Is the documentary out yet? Not yet. Next summer, uh, that's the next like thing I've got out there. I, I always have to have something out there that sounds crazy, but it keeps me um, active. Um, so I have two websites. Um, and they're, they're easy. It's livingundeterred.com and livingundeterred.org. Uh, I'm going to be eventually through the branding and so forth, consolidating all that. Um, and that has everything in there. It has clips from the tour. It's got the book you can buy. 
Um, like I said, you can go to Audible as well and, and get the my voice on the book. Uh, and, and we're going to be doing some new things with that project. But the app for the kids is uh, our landing page is www.brighton. So we spelled it B-R-I-G-H-T-N, yourlife.com. That's our landing page. So what that means is if you fill out, put your email in there, when we go live, which we're supposed to go live in about two weeks, uh, you'll get a notification. You'll get information on how to download the app and all that. So uh, those would be the best ways um, uh, for people to reach out to me. Then I'm on LinkedIn. We'll definitely put all those in the, the show notes as well. Um, and final question for you, Jeff, what does it mean to you to be an author of impact? The evolution of self. And that's a chapter in my book. And if you notice, my tagline says, after it says, this one's for you, it says an inspirational journey through addiction, death, and meaning. So I wanted to be very intentional in how this has been an evolution of myself as a human being. So I start with addiction and then death and then meaning. So for me, it was very important to put those three words in that order. So this one's for you, an inspirational journey through addiction, death, and meaning is written by a dad from Iowa who through death found life, which is really an odd dichotomy there. Mm. But, um, and I fight every day. I, I fight every day to stay in this zone, you know, in this flow. They call it flow state. And um, I'm not going to let him down. I mean, that's... What else does a dad and a husband do, right? You know? Oh, Jeff, uh, you, you are such a shining light when it comes to life after trauma and, and still living with fulfillment and joy alongside that trauma. So thank you so much for your vulnerability. And you definitely have done, you know, Seth and Prudence proud, you know, um, and just so I'm so moved by your vulnerability and your courage as well. So thank you so much for joining us on the show. And um, I can't wait for people to find out more about the work you're doing and also to see this amazing documentary when it comes out as well. So, Well, thank you very much. I, again, appreciate the opportunity to share this and hopefully between a conversation, somebody can pull a wisdom, a nugget of wisdom out, right? I'm sure they will. Thank <laughs> you so much, Jeff. Thank you. Hey there, Changemaker. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you're feeling ready to take the next step in your author journey. As always, I'd love for you to hit the subscribe notification so that you can be the first to know when new episodes drop. And of course, if you're feeling ready to take the next step with your own writing and publishing journey and you're looking for one-on-one -on -one support, I would love for you to reach out to me at jazzrollinson.com slash bookcoaching. Until next time, keep writing, keep creating impact, and remember, there is always someone out there waiting for a story just like yours.